the spiritual journey, part of it tends to be opening to how life is, and out of that opening, accepting how life is and understanding how life is. On a Brahma Vihara retreat, I think we get a very clear sense of how we tend to want life to be a certain way, and we tend to think that we should be a certain way, and how much that uh, we're up against how we think we should be, or how we think life should be. And as we go through the practice, uh, the metta, or the loving-kindness, the um, karuna, the compassion, the mudita, the sympathetic joy, and the upeka, the equanimity, all mirror to us that way that we shift from that wanting it to be a certain way, or not wanting life to be a certain way, to being able to open to it as it is. And the understanding comes out of that opening, and accepting. The, each of the four Brahma Viharas, as you've heard us talk about, include understanding so that loving kindness is love with understanding. Compassion is this openness to the pain in this world with the understanding. Mudita is the appreciating of the joy in this world with the understanding. And as you've seen today, the equanimity takes so much understanding. It's, uh, it is all about understanding. When we do these practices, we run into the near and the far enemies, the experiences that seem like uh, the experience but isn't, like the loving-kindness, the experience of self-centered desire or lust will seem like love, but it actually is an unconditional, or the opposite is anger. The experience of compassion, the near enemy, is grief or sorrow, and that experience can seem so much like compassion, uh, but it isn't this touching the pain with a pleasant feeling of care. And the opposite is cruelty, the sympathetic joy, the exuberance or enthusiasm of touching the joy is the experience that seems so much like it but isn't, and the opposite is jealousy. With the equanimity, the experience that can seem so much like this cool balance in the face of joys and sorrows in this world Indifference seems like it, but it isn't. And the opposite is the reacting to the joys and sorrows with attachment and aversion. We often run into these near and far enemies a lot in our life and when we do these practices. So these near and far enemies aren't bad. They're not wrong. They're not something to get rid of. And over and over, I think, when we do these practices, we have to come against that, where we tend to think that we should have, if we, we start doing somebody with mudita, for example, and we think we should feel this joy, but instead we feel jealousy. 
And what to do? Is that, does that jealousy mean that something's wrong? Or is it something to understand, to learn how to experience, learn to let it come and go? That's what the, the mindfulness and the Vipassana helps us do. We shift back to just being as fully as we can with that experience and coming to understand it. That's where this, these four Brahma-viharas help us open to the whole range of experience in life because as, as, it, as we touch these near and far enemies, we have to open to how we are <laughs> rather than how we think we should be. And out of that, going through these experiences, we come to understand what loving-kindness is. We come to understand what compassion is. We come to understand what sympathetic joy is an equanimity. We can't understand them if we don't run into the near and far enemies and learn how to work with them. So it's the understanding that purifies these four divine abodes. We've talked a lot about the loving-kindness practice this um, retreat, so I thought I'd just try to talk about the other three in this talk. In your experience with the compassion, I think you've started to get that sense of how delicate that balance is between wanting to respond to the pain in oneself or others or in this world and feeling that movement to touch the pain and then going into it so deeply that we drown in it. And then the opposite is to move away from the pain uh, and not be able to feel the compassion at all. The heart isn't connected. So when we go to connect, when there is that willingness to touch the pain, often we do feel grief. Often we do feel aversion. Often we do feel sorrow. And that's okay. That's how we find what this compassion is. And we find that we can learn to just hold the pain. Uh, It's like holding the pain or touching the pain with this pleasant feeling of care. And the way you find out if, if it's really this compassion with understanding is that it feels good. It feels wonderful. And there's so many opportunities in this world to practice this. If you're ever in any doubt, you know, just turn a TV on. You know, <laughs> if you're ever needing some work on this, you don't have to go far. <laughs> you can go anywhere uh, and find that we have this opportunity to transform our awareness of suffering into care, into this, in the, into this beautiful feeling of compassion. When we do the compassion practice, part of what we start to see is that pain is a part of life. And that in learning to understand about how the truth is or what life is about is accepting that the pain happens in this world because just because it's here, it, it happens. 
So we learn how to connect to the pain in this world as well as to the joy. This is a phrase by Dogen, who was a great uh, Japanese Zen master. He said, without bitterest cold that penetrates to the very bone, how can plum blossoms send forth their fragrance all over the universe? This is um, the experience of meditation. This isn't just about spring. (laughs) Without bitterest cold that penetrates to the very bone, how can plum blossoms send forth their fragrance all over the universe? The plum blossoms are the, the liberation, the compassion, the wisdom. But we go through the bitterest cold for that to happen. And this doesn't mean that every, everyone on this planet experiences pain, but that doesn't mean that everybody gets liberated. So there has to be somehow this recognition that there's a way in which there's a uh, paying attention to the suffering, paying attention to the pain in this world, developing an awareness with understanding of it, opening to it, accepting it, understanding it. That's what leads to liberation. So the pain in itself and the suffering in this world can't lead to liberation. It's, it's this awareness and the willingness to feel the pain, the quivering of the heart in response to suffering that brings about the liberation. Life is full of the peaks and the joy as well. This is a poem by Basho that reminds me of the spring. Ah, how glorious, green leaves, young leaves, <coughs> glittering in the sunlight. And we've been walking through these, this emerald <laughs> paradise here. It's so green. It's so lush and beautiful. Spring, there's this, the joy and the sorrow. When we open to this, when we open to life, we are opening to both. When we close off, we close off to both. Liberation doesn't include just opening to the suffering. It includes opening to the joy and the sorrow. The suffering in this world, if if one brings oneself to contemplate one's own and then expands into everyone in this room, expands just... If you just watch the robins outside eating the worms, you know, there can be that range of mudita for the robins but if you tune into the worms you know just just in one moment of seeing that you've got this whole range right there you don't have to go far to see that uh, amazing process of life of birth and death of predator prey you know wherever we are in that we tend to be judging how we're doing in this world And if we turn into just the suffering, it can seem very dense and heavy, uh, mucky, and there isn't a tendency to feel light or buoyant. 
unless we develop this compassion. So just to know that it's a pleasant feeling of care and not to judge yourself if you can't feel that at times, if you feel bogged down and heavy and grieving. It's, it's your journey through that that gets you to, to feel the, the pleasant feeling of care. You don't get to compassion by avoiding it, by not feeling it. My first year of college was in Springfield, Massachusetts here. It's not always such a pleasant city. If you know it, you know what I mean. And in those days, it was uh, years of welfare riots and the Vietnam War, (coughs) students taking over the dorms. Uh, And it was at the time then that uh, if you were tuning into television, one of the things that really um, was kind of etched into my heart was watching the monks and nuns immolate themselves in protesting the Vietnam War, setting themselves on fire. For me, that period of time uh, was such a time of opening up to the pain in this world and not being able to hold it. It, it's like a, it was a disastrous time for me in a way because I was connecting but I I just couldn't handle the amount of pain I was seeing. And the monks and nuns lighting themselves up on our TV screens, I think, was really kind of the epitome of that time period that we all lived through. So I wasn't doing very well. (laughs) I was uh, very frustrated and angry. I had a teacher at that time who I consider a great benefactor that is a Quaker. And I'd never run into a Quaker before. And he had this amazing development of compassion and equanimity. There was a real sense of him being very open to life, very joyful, but not not closed down. He, he was one of the few people I ran into in my life up to that point that seemed connected but aware and balanced. So there was a certain point during that time period where many professors who were more aware were, were quitting or were getting fired. And I could feel him struggling very deeply. There was one day when there was going to be violence there on the campus and people taking over dorms and buildings. And I remember he was so troubled, he canceled classes the day before and went out to the woods. And I I was uh, involved with the uh, (laughs) demonstrations at that point. And at a very important point in my life, because I felt like I was interested in peace, you know, that was a really big word then, but I didn't feel it inside, and I knew that I wasn't feeling it inside. So I felt like I was yelling about it, but I wasn't experiencing it. And I didn't have a way of really being able to verbalize that, but I saw this professor come back the next day from the woods, 
And he had that peace. You know, he was so deeply rooted in nonviolence. He was so committed to nonviolence and this upeka, this equanimity, as well as the, the, the compassion that just, it wasn't anything he said, but I was so affected by the feeling that he came back with after a day out in nature that I just left school. You know, I knew, I knew that was my path, but I didn't know how to do it. And that's, I think, a very big question for us all, is, is how to be connected in this world, how to be open, but how to be balanced with the amount of pain in this world. There are so many different ways to learn how to hold that pain. We can hold it with compassion. We can hold it with equanimity. I didn't know that at the time. And that imagery uh, from Vietnam, the monks, and nuns uh, on our television screens seemed to me to be a, another clue besides my professor. In June of 1965, Thich Nhat Hanh had written to Martin Luther King that these self-immolations were neither desperate acts of suicide nor political protests. He said the monk's aim was solely that of moving the hearts of the oppressors and at calling the attention of the world to the suffering endured by the Vietnamese. To say something while experiencing this kind of pain is to say it with the utmost courage, frankness, determination, and sincerity. Thich Nhat Hanh said that each burning monk or none became Vietnam herself, a lotus in a sea of fire. These um, beings, these great beings, touched me so much, I felt that um, I could see the compassion and feel that they weren't taking sides. And now I understand that they were just trying to wake us up. And they did, you know, the, the power of that, that, that reverberation, that echoing, affects us all now. That's how powerful they're helping us to wake up to the suffering in this world was. Over time, I decided to go back to that professor, not to study what he had to teach um, in terms of a... Um, subjects like botany or environmental education, which he taught. Uh, but I wanted to be around that. I wanted to soak in that peace and that joy. When I graduated, I took many courses with him. Uh, he gave me a little sketchbook, and he said at the beginning of it, I flow through you to others and dance along the way. I felt that he was such a great teacher for inter understanding interconnectedness, joy, compassion, equanimity. He was the first person in my life that I felt that I could aspire to be like. Steve's talk about spiritual friendship, uh, that's what that is. That's that sense of knowing that if he can do it, I can do it. They, they inspire us 
and they're so important in our life. If we don't know people, we can read about them. <laughs> they're, they're out there, and they're in here, in our heart. The compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. So the loving kindness is the foundation for the openness of heart, and we apply that openness of heart and well-wishing. We apply that to pain. That's the compassion. So it's just metta. Compassion is just metta-oriented towards suffering and pain. That's all it is. Mudita, or empathetic joy, is just the metta oriented toward joy. They, they feel, they're very similar, they feel warm. They're very warm, they're very connected. It's said that it's easier to sympathize with other people's suffering uh, than to feel the affection for people that we need to feel for the sympathetic joy. So compassion is usually, for most people, easier to experience than the mudita. When I first did the mudita practice, I used to do it for myself with a question mark at the end of it. It was so foreign to me. You know, the, the kind of tempo of it was, may my happiness and success never end. <laughs> it was, I could never do it flat, you know, with a period. <laughs> it was just, for, for so long, it had that, you know, it just was so different to me that, that I could wish that for myself, never mind to others, but it was a really uh, new concept. I had never gotten the concept. <laughs> if we just get the concept, it's such a wonderful thing. <laughs> to be able to feast on the joy in this world. What a wonderful thing. Over the years of being able to practice the mudita, I started to look at why, why did I never even have the concept? And I look back in my family and our neighborhood, there was so much um, suffering that it, it, it was like to mention anything good, it was like superstitiously you weren't allowed to do it. You know, if you mentioned anything good, you had to knock on wood and say, oh, but <laughs> it's like the day of doom would come down. If, if you mentioned it, it, that's, it was not okay to talk about good things. And I was talking with my sister, I talk with her every once in a while, and I see that. I'll say, oh, how are you? And if it's good, she'll say, oh, we're coping. We're coping. <laughs> and then you don't, you don't say anything about good stuff. It's only bad stuff. Uh, it's bad form to talk about good things. <laughs> and even in our neighborhood, if, if anybody had anything good happen, you didn't talk about it. Because it, it was... It, would, it was like it hurt other people that were suffering to talk about good things. Just, it just wasn't something you did. You would hide it. Anything good was hidden. When I, when I went to Hawaii with, with Steve, who was born in Honolulu, it's just the opposite there. I come from outside of Boston, and being there, 
it, it was just a totally different system where you really don't talk about bad things. It, you know, you talk about good things. And I, I, I never seem to quite fit in. <laughs> I'll start, <laughs> I'll start, his, I'll talk with his mother on the phone and I'll just start rattling off, you know, ten bad things that happen in the day. <laughs> and I'll tell, after about the fifth or sixth, I can feel like, this isn't, something's wrong. <laughs> Maybe I'd better try to think of something good that happened. <laughs> it's, it's, I think there's a middle path there, <laughs> somewhere. Uh, Hawaii, the Hawaiian people, the, the energy there, because it didn't change over to being so dominated by our culture until recently. There's such a different energy around celebrating life. There's a, it's okay to celebrate life. It's okay to be joyful. And their music, the dance, it's just, it just kind of, you breathe that celebrating there. It's, it's like there's a whole culture that emphasizes mudita. And it's interesting to be in that when you come from a culture that doesn't seem to emphasize mudita. If you look at a if you look at a newspaper, you get a clue at how little joy, you know, the appreciation of joy, it's not valued. And how out of balance we are. To me this Brahma Vihara is the most important one for our culture. It's so, it's so rare, it's so out of balance, it's so foreign to us, it's not, it's like it's not okay. George Winston uh, started a music company for Hawaii, a music for slack key music. And he said about the music that the sound comes from deep feelings. It has tremendous feelings of the moment and yet of nostalgia. It speaks in a language all of its own, a language of longing, of happiness, of sensitivity and strength. Most of the music is about rain or flowers or friendship. It's, it's really simple music. The words are really simple. The music is beautiful. And it's about appreciating really simple things like uh, a beautiful day, a beautiful sunset, uh, and a lot on flowers, the beauty, the beauty of a party. You know, they, they, they sing about parties. Do you hear much music on the radio about parties? You know, the, the, it's just different. It's so wonderful. And being around that has helped me to see that mudita doesn't have to be about somebody being great, being super successful. It's really about tuning into what brings about joy for that person. And often it's very simple. It's, it's incredibly simple. So I know for Carol, she has a great a bird feeder outside her kitchen window. 
and, and she has this huge 50-pound bag of bird seed <laughs> outside her door. And for Carol, if I want to do mudita, I'll just think of her looking at the bird. And it just brings me so much mudita. It's, it's really easy to feel mudita for Carol, because I just imagine her with her bird. <laughs> and then, I mean, there's other things, of course, but that's not a hard, it's not, doesn't take a lot of effort. Or for Steve, if he thinks of waves, he's really happy. (laughs) And actually, if you look at how much he actually gets to go out on them, it's so little. It's not, you know, they're not, it's not like he arrives home and the waves are there. You have to wait and wait and wait and wait. And he just kind of walks out and way down the path and, and looks out and it's like, (laughs) <laughs> he, they're not usually there. And when we're away, he, sometimes he'll call the surf report. Um, <laughs> and it's like, even if he hears that there's waves, he'll be happy. <laughs> he can be 9,000 miles away. 9,000 miles away. But it makes him happy. <laughs> he just called yesterday. Were there waves? <laughs> now, I don't have to work very hard. You know, when I say, let's go to the right. It's just, I think of the birds. If I go to the left, I think of the waves, you know, and I'm all set. (laughs) I like popcorn, you know. (laughs) It's not really that much. It doesn't require a lot. But we tend to think it has to be something major. And it, it, if you think of what brings you happiness, it's usually something, some moment or moments where you're actually there. You know, you're quiet, you're, you're actually walking outside and you feel the sun, you feel the wind, or you, know, you really see a dandelion. It's, it's just, it's that simple. If I see a whale, you know, it brings me so much happiness. It's not, you know, as if you see a deer or see a chipmunk. Mm-hmm. If you think of the times here that you've been so, think of the joy the chipmunks bring us. You know, it's incredible. They're funny. <laughs> They're so cute. <laughs> if you think of what makes yourself happy, that's another way to get how easy it is because it's, it might not be that it, you're getting it a lot in the day. I mean, that's what's hard for us is that we might not, like with Steve with the waves or Carol with the birds, it's not like they're getting it all day or a lot, but it's just those moments are what matters. That's what we tune into. That's uh, how the mudita generates. One of the things that my mother liked in between 
um, most of her drunkenness was she, in the middle of the night she played the saxophone in our cellar. <laughs> uh, I didn't get much sleep as a child. Um, but there was a certain music that she loved, which was the blues. She loved the blues, and Billie Holiday was her favorite, and also Louis Armstrong. And one of the songs that she played over and over and over was um, the song that reminds me so much of Mudita, which is a What a Wonderful World. Most of you know it. Uh, and you can think of Louis Armstrong, you can just gather that he probably didn't have an easy life. And if you hear this song, it's I'll read some of the words because it's particularly about Mudita. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the brightness of day, the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Mudita. When I did my self-retreat this year, the little one this winter, the woman who brought me food, uh, I wanted to give her something. So the, fir- the few days before I started the self-retreat, I had been at my flower arranging class. We, it, was a, it was called informal Ikebana, and there were supposed to be no rules to it. But she did give us one rule, which was that we had to share whatever we did in class. So we were allowed to keep one, and we had to give one to a police station or a fire station or a friend. And she would check us. We'd come in at the next class, and she'd ask us who we gave them to, how they liked it. Uh, and it was kind of hard. It was a hassle because, you know, you get home at 10 at night, and there's lots of these containers and flowers, and then you have to next day go to them, give it to them, and then later in the week, go get it, pick it, pick all the stuff up before the next class. And if one is busy, it, it seems like it's hard to manage, but we had to do it. That's incredible teaching in that. She wouldn't let us keep it for ourselves. We had to share it. If you don't think your arrangement's so good, it's kind of hard. You know, you bring your really ugly little arrangement (laughs) to the police station, and they kind of, you know, (laughs) look at you like you're a nutcase. (laughs) But this was the class, so 
Um, <laughs> so this time I was really busy getting away, getting ready for the self-retreat. So I just, I, I wanted them for myself, as a matter of fact. But I put all of them out on the, our porch. And so I wrote her a note that said, I thought it said, pick one. <laughs> pick one of these and bring it home. So I was sitting and she brought the food and left it out there and I heard her take something. And, and then I came out an hour later and she took them all. <laughs> and I was just, at first I was like, I didn't want to share all these with you. One was hard enough. Uh, and, and it was just watching myself go through it was like the, it's it's like a jealousy. It's like I it's not I don't have enough. Jealousy is a word, but often we feel like we're not um, good enough, or we're not you know we don't have enough. It comes out of this feeling of scarcity. So I just the reason I'm telling this story is because I find that when I can go through that feeling, then I can reach the mudita. You know, we tend to have such resistance to jealousy. We, we feel, like I walked out and the first thing I thought was, I should feel okay about that. But I, at the first moment was like, mm. <laughs> she took too much. Uh, so instead of thinking that I shouldn't have that experience, I opened to it. And that's the difference in terms of our practice, we can start to be able to, instead of saying, I shouldn't be jealous, in terms of mudita, you'll run into the mudita, you'll run into the jealousy if you do the mudita practice, or if you live a life, <laughs> if you're a human being. We do get jealous. And instead of thinking we shouldn't close down, we can open to the experience with the mindfulness, and it's fine. It's just the feeling of not having enough not being great enough, whatever it is, but it's that scarcity. If you can feel it, often, after I felt it, I felt so happy that she had these arrangements. You know, I kept thinking of her, you know, some of them were okay. <laughs> you know, I kept thinking of them in her house and for her husband, and she brought one to her therapy office. She's a um, therapist. So it was so wonderful to go through that and feel the mudita. Once in a while, you may be able to go right to the mudita, but often it's a, it's a process. Remember, it's, it's a process, not a final result. It's said that sympathetic joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that can soften its unmoving appearance. It's called the divine smile on the face of the Buddha. If you look at the Buddha statues, you know, the, one of the ways that um, you can feel the, the warmth of that little smile. And it's not that near enemy where one's, the Buddha isn't going, yippee, you know, it's not, it's, it's not, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's <laughs> the face isn't, in that over-exuberant state, there's that balance, but you can feel the smile. That's the mudita. 
the loving kindness, the compassion, the sympathetic joy, uh, the first three are balanced by the equanimity. They give, they, the equanimity gives deep evenness and stability to the first three. All beings meet their joys and sorrow according to natural law. Things are as they are. Ownership of action. Our happiness and our sorrow depend upon our actions, not upon our wishes for ourselves. Equanimity is that deep, unconditional acceptance of how things are. If we take a really good look at ourselves, if we take a really good look at anyone, or if you take a look at the planet or the universe, we see this, this intense, vast range of joy and sorrow happening. And then how do we hold that? How do we come to understand that? It's, it's not that you would just do it in one day. That's impossible. It's, it's, it's a vast um, depth to fathom, to understand. One of the things that you've probably come to see is that we can't fake acceptance. You know, we might wanna, we might wanna be accepting, but we can't fake it. When it, when we're reacting, when we're reacting, when the heart is closed, when we're numb, and indifferent, we're closed. And hopefully, you've come to see that that's okay. That's part of it. Part of learning equanimity is is experiencing the the heart get numb or dead or indifferent or reactive. When we feel indifferent, if we're not aware of it, this is what often leads to passivity. Many of the questions that come at ends of retreats are often around, you know, is, is the meditation practice about getting more and more passive? And that's, that's the near enemy. That's not understanding. Understanding doesn't bring us to a place of being cut off and inactive and non-responsive and in denial. It's just equanimity doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean that we don't take action to change things. What happens is when there's something painful, for example, say we contemplate starvation, a spiritually mature person, if their heart is connected and open, of course would support action for, that, for doing something. Uh, but the compassion can be balanced with equanimity. So instead of being overwhelmed by the suffering and being drowning in grief or anger or despair, we don't get caught up in blame or, or often the wise but we just respond. We don't get caught up in whether it's right that people are starving or wrong, but that there's a response that comes out of compassion, but there's balance. There's a balanced response. So when I said this morning that equanimity um, isn't, it doesn't mean that we're accepting that the pain in this world is right, 
It's that we learn how to respond to the pain in this world because it's here with a balanced response, with a balance of the compassion and the equanimity. And it's not easy. It's hard. For me, the best example, because um, I, 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 I was in a car accident about two years ago, and I was in the emergency room. And I thought about, well, what if, what if you were in the emergency room and you had a, a big problem, and that's why you're there? And say the nurse or the doctor just started going hysterical, you know, Oh, no, this is terrible. And crying and sobbing. Would that be helpful? <laughs> you know, it, it, it isn't. In fact, you'd probably prefer somebody indifferent but skillful. You know? <laughs> I still rather have an indifferent surgeon than a hysterical surgeon. You know, I mean, there's a way in which you would want somebody to be effective in that situation, but really what we want is we want somebody empathetic. We want somebody connected. It's terrible when we have the experience of somebody caregiving that isn't there. Um, it's, it's really painful. So to be able to have the experience of having that balance, it is rare in this world. And it doesn't mean that that doctor or nurse wouldn't leave there and go through tremendous grief and tears and frustration, and no matter when we're, whenever we're dealing with suffering, whether it's with a child or a parent or a friend, a partner or a situation in this world, suffering, we just don't meet it with this perfect balance. Sometimes we have to meet it with balance, but then later we go through the emotion. Uh, but when, when, some, when, when there's a balanced response to pain, it's very effective the person who's receiving it will feel that. They'll feel that balance of care and detachment. The way we work with suffering in this world is finding that balance of the compassion and the equanimity, not, not drowning in the pain all the time. We might drown in it sometimes and learn from it, but we find this place of balance sometimes. One of the hardest parts of the equanimity practice is the understanding of karma, and that it's a whole talk in and of itself is to talk about karma because it's so difficult to understand. But this is the reason why this Brahma Vihara can be the hardest, is that it requires the deepest understanding in us, and it's easier when we have some confidence or faith in the law of cause and effect. As I said this morning, the Buddha said that it is near, nearly impossible to understand karma, the mysteriousness of it. Well, the, the fruits of karma. We can understand the law of cause and effect, but it's very hard for us to understand how the karma ripens. I find it helpful um, sometimes to try to focus still on the reality of what is happening rather than why something is happening. After I was in a car accident two years ago and I was in a lot of pain after it, 
physical pain, my mind just kept thinking, you know, why? You know, why? Over and over. And I would look at that experience of why, and I would see that I would get caught in that question whenever I couldn't open to the physical pain. It was really interesting. And when I would see that I was getting caught in the why, I would just say, oh, it happened. You know, it's just, it was, I was still struggling and resisting the fact that it actually happened. And then I could shift to opening to the pain. And then there'd be a certain place where I'd reach my limit with it and I'd get into the why again. And I would watch that cycling over and over that what brought me to an ability to open to the pain and accepting it would be to accept that the event happened. And it, it can sound like that simple, but it's very hard to do with painful things. It's extremely hard to do. In fact, you can't do it all in one point. You know, with very hard old karmic knots, you can't do it all in one lump. You know, you tend to accept it, and then you fight it, and then you accept it, and it, it just, you go over and over again. You work with accepting that certain things have happened. The Dalai Lama said that we can use suffering as a means to progress. It is also possible for very negative people to experience their positive karma ripening immaturely due to the very strong force of negative actions and thus to exhaust the potentials of their virtuous actions. They experience a relative success in this life while others who are very serious practitioners as a result of the force of their practices bring upon this lifetime the consequences of karmic actions which might have otherwise thrown them into rebirth and lower realms of existence in the future. As a result, they experience more problems and illnesses in this life. Did you understand that? It's, it's very interesting. He's saying that sometimes as a result of our spiritual practices, that um, by doing them, <clears throat> we bring on more suffering in this life, but we're avoiding difficulty in future lives. So we're, it's like a purification in this life. And I find that for myself, having some, had some difficult karma, which most of us have, it's very comforting. You know, to, and that's where, <laughs> it's very comforting, want me to read it again? <laughs> uh, taking, the, taking the viewpoint of lifetimes is so important if you believe in that because it's so much bigger than us. You know, this whole mysterious uh, way in which we experience the joys and sorrows in this world. It's just, it's the fruits of our intentions. It's the fruit, it's the results of karma that are hard to understand. It's very easy to get caught in, well, I, I have this uh, illness because of this, you know, and that's getting into that kind of blame or punishment isn't helpful. And it's not what the understanding of karma is all about. Uh, last, last year, Steve and I were at this wedding in January, and it, 
just it's a long story, but it just so happened that this very, very big person stepped on my foot and broke my foot. And um, <laughs> Steve kind of pulled up the car, <laughs> and uh, we had gotten ice, and I jumped in the car, and we were driving away from the scene. And I, it was so, it was just, it, ultimately it wasn't that painful an experience, but the initial 15 minutes were quite painful. Uh, and I was just, the, my, it was so painful, and I was thinking, I was saying to Steve, I have such bad karma, I have such bad karma, I have such bad karma. It was so funny. I mean, all I could think of is, oh, this is really bad karma. <laughs> But that's pretty simplistic. I mean, you know, of course, when you when when you have that kind of effect, there's some kind of cause. You know, there, you kind of know it wasn't probably because of something wonderful I had done. Um, <laughs> but it's very simplistic. We tend to get into this more of a Judeo-Christian viewpoint. Of, of punishment, and it, it, it's just much more complicated than that. If you do believe in lifetimes, it's like a lot of the physical pain we experience on a retreat, for example, or emotional pain, doesn't have to be from this lifetime. In fact, a lot of the time it isn't. It's, it's, just, it's a very deep purification process that we're doing, and there's many moments where what we're receiving in this moment is not from this, it's not the results from an intention in this lifetime. So it is very vast. I think that the phrase that Steve uses or suggests that our joys and sorrows arise according to natural law or things are as they are um, or to understand the phrase ownership of action the real deep meaning in that is that we have responsibility for ourselves you know that um, we learn in the meditation practice to take responsibility for our happiness and sorrow this is a quotation from Chief Seattle. He said, who was a great Native American chief from the Northwest, he said, if all the animals were gone, we would die from loneliness of spirit. If all the animals were gone, we would die from loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the animals happens to the humans. All things are connected. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons and daughters of the earth. There, you see, there's that sense. It's like we're all totally interconnected. And in, within that interconnectedness, we all have responsibility. Uh, so that's a, to me, that's an understanding that we can have of this Brahma Vihara, that yes, you know, we do have responsibility, we're interconnected, but we can't always see that so clearly from moment to moment, and it's, it would drive us crazy to try to understand it on a moment-to-moment level. What matters is, is how I started the talk, that what we're doing on our spiritual journey is just slowly trying to open and understand how life is ourselves and all other beings.
And from that understanding, we develop more and more happiness, wisdom, and compassion. The path is one of becoming more and more connected and more and more balanced, more and more caring, and more and more detached in a healthy way. So I'd like to end with a quotation. It's, a, it's from a Native American, but it, I don't know. It's an anonymous quote. And I think it's a great uh, way to think about our life, you know, taking responsibility for taking birth here, however mysterious this, this strange journey that we have called life is. Uh, we can learn to take responsibility for being here. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a manner that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.